And it's 1 Kings chapter 19, the first 13 verses. Now Ahab told Jezebel everything Elijah had done and how he had killed all the prophets with the sword. So Jezebel sent a messenger to Elijah to say, May the gods deal with me, be it ever so severely, if by this time tomorrow I do not make your life like that of one of them. Elijah was afraid and ran for his life. When he came to Beersheba in Judah, he left his servant there, while he himself went a day's journey into the wilderness. He came to a broom bush, sat down under it, and prayed that he might die. I have had enough, Lord, he said. Take my life, I am no better than my ancestors. Then he lay down under the bush and fell asleep. All at once, an angel touched him and said, Get up and eat. He looked around, and there by his head was some bread baked over hot coals and a jar of water. He ate and drank and then lay down again. The angel of the Lord came back a second time and touched him and said, Get up and eat, for the journey is too much for you. So he got up and ate and drank. Strengthened by that food, he travelled 40 days and 40 nights until he reached Horeb, the mountain of God. There he went into a cave and spent the night. And the word of the Lord came to him, What are you doing here, Elijah? He replied, I have been very zealous for the Lord God Almighty. The Israelites have rejected your covenant, torn down your altars and put your prophets to death with the sword. I am the only one left and now they are trying to kill me too. The Lord said, Go out and stand on the mountain in the presence of the Lord, for the Lord is about to pass by. Then a great and powerful wind tore the mountains apart and shattered the rocks before the Lord. But the Lord was not in the wind. After the wind there was an earthquake, but the Lord was not in the earthquake. After the earthquake came a fire, but the Lord was not in the fire. And after the fire came a gentle whisper. When Elijah heard it, he pulled his cloak over his face and went out and stood at the mouth of the cave. Then a voice said to him, What are you doing here, Elijah? What are you doing here, Elijah? What am I doing with this? Okay, what a moment after the highs of last week, chapter 18. Remember the grand final contest between Elijah and the 450 prophets of Baal? The Lord answering by fire, The highs of that moment, then today we have this low, this very human moment where Elijah says, I've had enough, take my life. It's a low human moment, it's also a divine moment, the Lord appearing to Elijah, not in this great wind, not in the earthquake, not in the fire, but in a gentle whisper. Now traditionally these stories have been taken as either a lesson in spiritual depression and burnout. Elijah's afraid, he flees for his life, he spits the dummy, God rebukes him, what are you doing here, Elijah, when you should be back there? Or it's been taken in as a lesson in how to hear God's voice today. And maybe you've heard a sermon like that. Of course, spiritual burnout is a reality and God does speak to us today. But I want to suggest that this final section of 1 Kings isn't about spiritual burnout at all. And nor is it about how to hear God's voice. It's about what God's going to do about evil. Now, why do I say that? Because after the highs of Mount Carmel in chapter 18, King Ahab, Queen Jezebel, they remain intent on doing evil. 
And the thread that runs through these chapters is what God is going to do about them. Which makes me think that Elijah's cry, Lord, take my life, that behind that cry is the cry that Jesus teaches us to pray. Our Father, deliver us from evil. I think Elijah's cry is not the cry of a selfish man, but of a godly man who in the face of staggering evil is pushed to his limit. I want you to pray with me. Father in heaven, please open our eyes so that we can come to this part of your word fresh and see what we need to see and hear what we need to hear so that it would create faith. Um, Help me to speak only that which is true and help us to be receptive to you. In Jesus' name, amen. Okay, I want you to consider the faces of evil presented. Verse 1 of chapter 19 is the very first verse, right, after the contest on Mount Carmel where the Lord demonstrated beyond a shadow of a doubt that he, not Baal, is the one who is God. Now, you'd expect, if we hadn't read this, we'd expect that verse 1 of the next chapter would be a moment of national repentance, When Ahab realises, and he leads, he does the job of the king, and leads people in repentance, ditching Baal, turning to the Lord. That's what we'd expect. But of course, that is not what happens. Instead, Ahab goes home. He tells his wife, Queen Jezebel, everything Elijah's done, not what the Lord did, right? But everything Elijah did and how he'd killed all the prophets, even though it wasn't he that actually did that. So Jezebel sends a personal message to Elijah. May the gods deal with me, be it ever so severely, if by this time tomorrow I do not make your life like one of them. Personal evil attack. Those words from the mouth of Queen Jezebel are actually used again in the next chapter by a Syrian king who bears another face of evil. He says in chapter 20, verse 10, May the gods deal with me, be it ever so severely, if enough dust remains in Samaria to give each of my men a handful. So you've got a a queen and then a king who are bent on evil, invoking the judgment of their own pagan gods against them if they don't do the evil. So you've got evil attack. Then in chapter 21, you've got evil leadership. Twice we're told that Ahab had sold himself to do evil. If you read the chapters... Um, and I hope you've done it in the meantime, chapters 19 to 22, which we'll be covering today. It's always good to read the chapters in advance before you come to church because we can't have it read out if we're covering large slabs. But anyway, if you've read the chapter, you'll have read the story of Naboth's vineyard, which is a story which exposes, it's just ugly, it exposes Ahab's greed and his childishness and his theft and Jezebel's evil scheming and her murderous plans And the conclusion in verse 25 is there was never anyone like Ahab who sold himself to do evil in the eyes of the Lord, urged on by Jezebel, his wife. He behaved in the vilest manner by going after idols like the Amorites the Lord drove out before Israel. Evil attack, evil leadership. And even after Ahab is dead, at the end of 1 Kings, there's evil succession because after Ahab comes Ahab's son, Ahaziah, who at the end of chapter 22 also does evil in the eyes of the Lord, following the ways of his father and mother, serving and worshipping Baal, and arousing the anger of the Lord just as his father had done. 
After last week's high, when every knee bowed and every tongue confessed that the Lord, he was God, we'd expect national repentance. But instead, there's evil. And you think, what on earth, I mean, what more does it take, must it take, to turn people's hearts from evil? No wonder when Jesus taught his disciples how to pray, he included this this line as something which we've just got to pray often. Our Father in heaven, deliver us from evil. Well, in the last chapters of 1 Kings, chapters 19 to 22, we see actually God working to deliver Israel from evil. Four chapters is too much to go through. It's enough to focus on the first and the last of this section, chapter 19 and chapter 22. So you've got Elijah and the mountain of the Lord, Micaiah and the throne room of God. You've got two prophets, Elijah and Micaiah, both who are granted special access to God. So these chapters actually lift us. They lift us from the plane of evil, if you like, to where God is, to his mountain, his throne room. And what they do is they open our eyes about how God will deliver us from evil. Okay, so first of all, you've got Elijah and the mountain of the Lord. So after Jezebel sends her murderous message, the NIV, our our translation, says Elijah was afraid and ran for his life. And we hear that, and then we hear Elijah asking God to take his life, and we hear the Lord twice saying, what are you doing here? It sounds like God's rebuking Elijah for being, frankly, self-absorbed, having a moment of self-pity, and just not doing his job. Now, that's one way of reading it, okay? But then we remember, back on Mount Carmel, when Elijah's life was on the line, right, He wasn't afraid then. He was quite courageous. And also, if we have a look at the footnote, if you've got your NIV Bible, uh, at verse 3, when it says Elijah was afraid, that word for being afraid could equally be translated Elijah saw. So that instead of saying Elijah was afraid and ran for his life, it could say Elijah saw what Jezebel was planning and ran for his life. And yes, we... We do know he wanted to die. Yes, he did ask the Lord to take his life. But why, did, why might he have done that? If he thought his life was basically over, then could not he have just said, Lord, take my life because he didn't want Jezebel to take his life? You know, imagine if Jezebel had taken his life. She'd be parading his corpse around like some sort of trophy to Baal, <laughs> the great prophet. Look what I've got. No, 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 Lord, you take my life. I don't want her to gloat in evil and yes he ran 150 kilometers to the southernmost tip of the country to flee to safety but it's not as if he's running away from where God wants him to be and suddenly accidentally finds himself on the mountain of the Lord when the Lord rebukes him and says what are you doing here how do we know that because twice God sends his angel to meet Elijah to give him food to strengthen him for the journey what journey the journey to The mountain, the Lord is guiding him there. He wants him to come. And we think, well, why does the Lord want Elijah to come? Well, we're given a clue. Mount Horeb is the name of the mountain. That is also Mount Sinai, where the Lord revealed himself to Moses in the burning bush, where Moses led the people to gather 
around the Lord, where Moses climbed the mountain and the Lord gave him the covenant. Um, it's the same, yeah, and also, sorry, there's the 40 days and 40 nights that Elijah travels and in that context of the mountain. It reminds us, oh yeah, Moses was up on the mountain for 40 days and 40 nights when the covenant was made and well, the nation of Israel, what were they doing? They were committing apostasy down the bottom for 40 days and 40 nights. The covenant made, the covenant broken at that time. Join the dots. Elijah is the only vocal functioning prophet. Israel's broken the covenant with God big time. Elijah was the only witness, godly witness of this, who can bear witness against Israel. The Lord strengthens him. He brings him to the mountain of the Lord, to the very place where the covenant was first made and broken. Why? To give formal witness against Israel for the breaking of the covenant. So when the Lord says to Elijah, what are you doing here? He's not speaking in anger. What are you doing here? (laughs) He's not angry at Elijah because Elijah's not where he's meant to be. Because the Lord's guided him there, right? Instead, I think it's better to read the Lord's tone as tender. What are you doing here? That is, tell me what's happened. So when Elijah answers, instead of thinking Elijah's just whinging, going on a bit, maybe he's saying things how, exactly how things have been. I have been very zealous for the Lord Almighty. The Israelites have rejected your covenant. They've torn down your altars. They've put your prophets to death with the sword. I am the only one left, meaning I am the only vocal functioning prophet. And now they're trying to put me to death also. Now, that is all true. And so now the question is, what is the Lord going to do in the face of such astoundingly brazen evil, given the revelation that happened on Mount Carmel? There, the Lord revealed him in fire. What's he going to do now? The Lord says, go out and stand on the mountain in the presence of the Lord, for the Lord is about to pass by. And then, of course, you've got this powerful wind. Can you imagine a wind so powerful it it breaks rocks open? I can't. That is an astoundingly powerful wind, but the Lord was not in the wind. And then, of course, there's this earthquake, massive earthquake. The Lord, Lord is not in the earthquake. There's this fire, right? Reminiscent of chapter 18. The Lord is not in the fire. The Lord in the face of ongoing evil is not anything dramatic like that. His presence, you'd almost miss it. He is present in the sound of a gentle whisper. Literally, the sound of silence. Simon and Garfunkel weren't the first to coin that term. The sound of silence or the sound of a thin murmur, the Hebrew word is mama, which where you get murmur from. Elijah hears this small sound and he goes outside. Is it something mystical? No, no. Because then what he hears is God's words, the quiet voice of God, the voice of God speaking. Again, now that Elijah is present with God, now that God form, now God formally says, "Okay, what are you doing here, Elijah?" That is, I'm present, you're present, we're here together, formally on the mountain. You're the chief witness to the broken covenant. Tell me what's happened. And Elijah repeats what he'd said earlier: "I've been very zealous for the Lord Almighty. The Israelites have rejected your covenant." 
They've torn down your altars. They've put your prophets to death through the sword. I am the only one left, and now they are trying to put me to death also. This is a formal accusation of a breach of the covenant. And now God, who is present by his word, he tells Elijah what he's going to do to deliver Israel from evil. He says, first of all, go back the way you've come and make new appointments. Anoint Hazael as the new king of Aram, that's Syria, right? He'll be God's agent of judgment against the Israelites. Anoint Jehu as the new king of Israel instead of Ahab. In other words, I'm getting rid of Ahab. And anoint Elisha as your successor because the word of God will continue. All of those three will be agents of judgment against the nation. But alongside this message of judgment that will come, comes a message of grace. I have reserved 7,000 in Israel, all whose knees I have not bowed to Baal and whose mouths have not kissed him. There will be a remnant. God will preserve his people. And that's it. That's what God does. Off Elijah goes, he anoints Elisha as his successor. And then, of course, there's a, well, there's a, there's a pause. There's no immediate eradication of evil. There's a lag. There's a gap between pronouncement and fulfillment. And isn't that the way it is? Isn't that the way it is? You know, all that the Lord has done thus far in the face of unbelievable evil is to speak. But him speaking is not a nothing. What he's done is, yes, he's given his quiet word, but this word carries power. This word changes history. This word will cause people to fall and others to rise. In the face of evil, God speaks and then history is changed. And this is important because when we see evil around us, we need to remember that God is doing something. He is seeing and he is speaking. He's speaking his quiet word to remove evil people because he will not allow evil to continue going on forever. And I take it that these chapters in between, in the middle, are given to us about Ahab as a case in point. In chapter 19, the Lord signals to Elijah that Ahab's reign will end. Jehu will be king. At the end of chapter 20, another unnamed prophet tells Ahab his life will be forfeit. In chapter 21, Elijah tells Ahab he's going to meet a bloody end. In fact, dogs will come and lick up your blood. And the whole family line will be cut off because you've so aroused God's anger and led Israel into sin. In other words, in the face of evil, the Lord sees, he hears, and then he speaks. Now, we may not hear what he says, but we've heard what he said about Ahab. And these chapters are here to remind us of what God does in the face of evil. He speaks. So in Elijah on the the mountain of God, you've got God doing something, him speaking. Now we need to see how it plays out, which brings us to chapter 22, to Micaiah and the throne room of God. Chapter 19 is about the pronouncement. Chapter 22 is about the fulfillment. Okay, in the interim, we've fast-forwarded some years. Things have been going quite well for Ahab. In fact, the place has been at peace. He's had some military victories. The neighbouring king of Judah, Jehoshaphat, visits him. Ahab says to Jehoshaphat, have you noticed Ramoth Gilead? Ramoth Gilead's a Syrian town, town of Aram, uh, to the east. And it's on a trade route. Uh, It's a plum prize to be taken. He says it really belongs to us, 
We're doing nothing to retake it. Jehoshaphat says, I'm with you. But first, we should hear what God says about this. And so, of course, Ahab brings his collection, his collection of the Lord's prophets. Now, we think, hang on, hasn't, wasn't he just trying to put them to death? So who are these 400 prophets? Oh, there were 400 prophets of Asherah back in chapter 18, which we weren't killed. We're not told they are the same, but, you know, it's the same number. And you think, given that how Ahab really did treat the ones who really were the Lord's prophets, and now he's suddenly got a group of 400, well, whose pocket are they really in? Whose words do they really pander to, the Lord's or Ahab's? Hmm, suspect. Ahab asks this group, shall I go to war against Ramoth Gilead or not? Go, they say, the Lord will give it into your hand. Now Jehoshaphat, King Jehoshaphat from Judah, he's not dumb. He says, is there no longer a real prophet of the Lord we can inquire of? Ahab says, well, there's still one prophet through whom we can inquire of the Lord. But I hate him because he never prophesies anything good about me, but always bad. He is Micaiah, the son of Imlah. Jehoshaphat says, you shouldn't say that. And Micaiah, who's the only true prophet around, but who's on the nose to Ahab, just like Elijah was, the only true prophet around in chapter 18, but on the nose to Ahab. Micaiah is the same. Nevertheless, he's sent for. And so Micaiah is brought in and there's this huge scene. There's the king of Israel and Judah sitting in their royal robes on their royal thrones before the gate of Samaria. And then you've got all 400 prophets prophesying before them. And in verse 11, one of the prophets, Zedekiah, son of Kenanah, comes with iron horns that he's made, this visual illustration, right? And he says, the Lord says, with these you will gore the Arameans until they're destroyed. And all the prophets are prophesying the same thing. Attack Ramoth Gilead and be victorious for the Lord will give it into the king's hands. And then the messenger who summoned Micaiah, he sidles up to him and he says, look, the other prophets without exception are predicting success for the king. Let your word agree with theirs and speak favorably. Is not that pressure? Pressure Never to say anything negative, but only to say what people want to hear. I remember once being in the Trinity City office, a lady lady appeared at the door needing help. She was well-dressed. She was staying at the hotel next door. She was, as it turned out, part of a baton-twirling group from Brisbane who were down at a baton-twirling convention in the convention centre. There you're right. She said uh, she needed help. (laughs) I've got no baton-twirling skills. Um, She said, no, 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 there's been a tragedy. What? Um, this, the ten-year-old son of one of the ladies in our group drowned at a picnic in Brisbane on Sunday. She said, we're a tight group. This lady's not here, but we're feeling it. Can you do something, do a service? Okay. So the next day, we went into church, and I was it. There was no other people aside from me and these women And none of them wanted to say anything. That was all the information that I had to go on, what she'd told me. And I can tell you, looking at that group of 40 or so baton-twelling, grieving women, with tears going down their face, there was a lot of pressure to say, don't worry, I give you full assurance that this boy is safe with God in heaven. 
Now, of course, I had no way of being able to say that because I don't know if that boy is safe with God in heaven. But there was a lot of pressure to say that, and I didn't. But the ladies, you could tell when they left, they left bereft at me because I did not comfort them with the word they wanted to hear. You know, sometimes we're called to speak and there's a lot of pressure to say what we know people want to hear. Uh, twice my kids have asked me, <laughs> sorry, friends of my, my daughters at high school have asked me to be videoed for a SOS assignment because I'm a minister, on my opinions on same-sex marriage. And I knew that this video would be then replayed to the class right while my kids are sitting in it. <laughs> okay, there's a lot of pressure at that point. This was before the plebiscite. Um, to only say that which the, I knew the class wanted me to, to say. There was pressure not to speak the, the sort of harder, edgier, aspects of the word of God and I can tell you that if you're a vocal Christian a known Christian there will be pressure on you at different points people will say well what do you think about that what's what what does the Bible say what does God say and there'll be pressure of you to only ever speak of God but never of Jesus there'll be pressure on you to only ever speak of salvation and eternal life but never of judgment or hell There'll be pressure on you to speak of life but not of death, to speak of values but never sin, and to speak of hope without the cross. When the pressure was put on Micaiah, his answer was, I can only say what the Lord tells me. And he is exactly right. And so the king turns to him and says, Micaiah, shall we go up to war against Ramoth Gilead or not? And Micaiah answers, and he's being sarcastic. Oh, attack and be victorious, for the Lord will give it into the king's hand. And we know he's being sarcastic, and the king knows it because of what the king says. How many times must I make you swear to tell me nothing but the truth in the name of the Lord? In other words, Micaiah's played this game with Ahab before. But then Micaiah speaks the true word of the Lord. I saw all Israel scattered on the hills like sheep without a shepherd. And the Lord said, these people have no master, let each one go home in peace. This is a double kick in the guts for Ahab. Not only does he say, you will not come home alive, because I saw Israel scattered on the hills like sheep without a shepherd, they will have no leader. That means you're dead. Not only does he say that, but then he says, things will be better off for the people, (laughs) because they will go home in peace when you're dead. Double punch. Okay. Ahab said to Jehoshaphat, didn't I tell you he never prophesies anything good about me, but always only bad? And then Micaiah, he speaks of the throne room of God. And this is the moment. You know, there aren't many moments in the Bible where the Lord kind of opens up the curtains and lets us see into heaven to, see, you know, to be privy to, the, to what goes on there. Well, this is a unique picture because I got, Micaiah continues, Therefore hear the word of the Lord. I saw the Lord sitting on his throne with the multitudes of heaven standing around him on his right and on his left. And what a contrast to the earthly picture. Kings on their thrones with the prophets around them. No, I saw the Lord on the throne in heaven and the multitudes around him. And the Lord said, Who will entice Ahab into attacking Ramoth Gilead and going to his death there? One suggested this, another that. Finally, a spirit came forward, stood before the Lord and said, I will entice him. 
By what means, the Lord asked. I will go out and be a deceiving spirit in the mouths of all his prophets, he said. You will succeed in enticing him, said the Lord. Go and do it. Okay. That's the vision. Maybe you're wondering about the ethics of the Lord using deception to bring Ahab down. Except when you think about it, he's been very honest about him using deception, hasn't he? I mean, he's told Ahab that this will be the means. He's been very upfront. Ahab can't be deceived that he was being deceived. Micaiah says, so now the Lord has put a lying spirit in the mouths of all these prophets of yours. The Lord has decreed disaster for you. Zedekiah, the prophet with the horns, at this point he slaps Micaiah in the face. He scorns him and as Micaiah then is led off to be imprisoned until Ahab comes back safely, Micaiah says, well, if that ever happens, the Lord hasn't spoken through me. In other words, you'll know a true prophet if what they say comes true. And that's the last words we have recorded of Micaiah, the son of Imla. To our knowledge, he died in prison. But what he said came true. He was the true prophet. Ahab and Judah went, uh, and sorry, Jehoshaphat went up in battle. Ahab thought it would be a good idea for him to be disguised. And so he went in full body armour. And he thought it would be a good idea if King Jehoshaphat from Judah actually dresses in Ahab's robes. Um, as Ahab himself in the chariot. That would be good. Um, Of course, Ahab was unaware that the king of Syria had said uh, to his chariot commanders, make sure you go after Ahab. But of course, the chariot commanders, when they saw Jehoshaphat, who was dressed up as Ahab, and they realised it wasn't Ahab, it was someone else, they then pulled the chase off them. So Jehoshaphat's safe. What of Ahab? Well, some archer randomly draws an arrow and just fires it. And randomly, surprisingly, it manages just to find the chink in the armour where the two plates are joined on Ahab. All day long, the king is propped up in the chariot, bleeding to death, while the battle rages around him. His blood runs under the floor of the chariot and in the evening he dies. The chariot afterwards gets washed outside the city in the pool where the prostitutes used to bathe and the dogs come and lick up the blood just as the word of God said. The end of that face of evil because of the unimpressive, quiet word of God. What does this tell us about how God will deliver us from evil? Well, the first thing to say is that God has already begun to do it. You know, God brought Elijah, didn't he, to Mount Sinai to to testify to the breach of the covenant. And we think, well, that's a problem because God revealed himself very powerfully on Mount Carmel. But still, people's hearts were evil. The book of Hebrews tells us the problem with that covenant was that the external laws don't actually change someone's heart. And this is why we need Jesus. He actually dies to bring us into a new covenant. And actually, there's parallels between Jesus and Elijah. Jesus, you remember, was sustained by the angels in the desert and fed by them after he was tempted. 
and like Elijah was. And of course, Jesus on the cross, when he was bearing our sin and the judgment of God, he uttered a cry very similar to Elijah. Lord, take my life. And when he uttered that cry, Eloi, Eloi, lama sabachthani, people thought that he was calling Elijah. He died on the cross to bring us into a new covenant so that we would have a new means of relating to God, not through law, but through him. And then, of course, dying and rising and ascending into heaven, he pours out his Holy Spirit so that he can remove our heart of stone and give us a heart of flesh. And by forgiving our sins and giving us his spirit, you see, God is already delivering us from the evil within. Praise God. Well, the second way that God delivers us from evil is by removing evil kings and governments and replacing them with new ones. Isn't it interesting that this should come up at this particular week? I'm passing no judgment on Malcolm Turnbull, but isn't it interesting? Romans 13 speaks of kings and governments as God's agents to punish those who do wrong and commend those who do right. Of course, no, no king or, or government is without sin. But where one is particularly evil, the Lord will replace it. He will bring it down. And he will do it by speaking quiet words which we may not hear, but which alter the course of human history. The third way... God delivers us from evil is through his promises of grace. You remember his words of grace to Elijah? I've reserved 7,000 in Israel who've not bowed the need to Baal. Do you remember God's words of grace, his promise to us? Jesus says, I will build my church and the gates of hell will not prevail against us. He's promised to do this in the face of evil. Even hell won't be able to prevail against it. You know, today, um, you think, where is it really hard to be a Christian? Well, one of the hardest places in the world to be a Christian is Iran. Guess where the church is growing the fastest in the whole world? Iran. And I've had the privilege of baptising several Iranian Christians who come into the city. And they're coming to Adelaide. They've come to different places around the world. So he'll deliver us from evil. A new covenant which changes our hearts new kings and governments which get replaced through his promises of grace to keep building his church and finally, finally, he will deliver us from evil one day, once and for all. Chapter 22 isn't the only place where God draws back the curtains into the heavenly throne room. The book of Revelation does it as well. And in chapters 19 and 20, it describes a day when all that is evil and false and opposed to God, the kings of the earth, their armies, the false prophet, the beast, Satan himself. They will be defeated once and for all and thrown into the fiery lake of burning sulfur. God will do it. We, will know he, we know he will do it. How do we know? Because of his quiet, responsive, but powerful word. It may not seem spectacular, but he's present in his words and that's what makes them so powerful because he's the one who's speaking them. And when we pray and when we call on him like Elijah did to deliver us from evil, what the Lord does is he sees and he hears and he's responsive and he speaks and he'll deliver, which is why we trust him. Let's pray. Father in heaven, deliver us from evil. Amen.